You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Brayman. Today, I'm joined by John Farragon to talk about a common drug for treating COVID-19, nirmatrelvir with ritonavir, or more widely known as Paxlovid. Welcome again, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana. Happy to be here again today. So, John, what is the status of COVID-19 at this time? We're currently in early summer of 2022. This episode is being released in June. Yeah, so I thought um, we would just review some of the new data on COVID, and particularly the issues with some with some new variants. And, and then uh, the CDC has some really interesting estimates of hospitalizations through the summer. And then I thought we would uh, spend some additional time talking about uh, some interactions with with um, ritonavir boosted nirmatrelvir, uh, and also the important story, probably the most important story today we'll cover is some of the nirmatrelvir ritonavir failures that that have been talked about kind of in the lay press and also some, some data is out there now. You mentioned new variants of the virus. So why don't we start there? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the good thing, I guess, on some level is that we're still dealing with the, with versions of Omicron in the, in the United States. So there's been a couple different uh, different Omicron variants uh, in the last few months. So many of you may know this, but on the CDC website, if you search like CDC COVID-19 and you search for variants, they, they have what they call a nowcast, which is a chart of basically what variants have occurred over time. And it's interesting to see the changes. And sometimes those changes happen pretty quickly. Like Delta came on very quick. Omicron, the, the original one, came on very quick. And you can see over time, week to week, how the, basically the, the new variants take over the other variants, which is really kind of remarkable, I think, with this virus. Um, so, so I'll give you an example. So in February, the Omicron, this BA.1.1 was the variant that was pretty much out there for almost 100% of people. And then over time, the BA.2 took over, and that happened in late March and early April. So if you just think about that, in, in a month and a half to two months, you know, another variant, this BA.2, took over. Um, and now o- over time, it looks like this BA.2.12.1. So it's BA.2.12.1, which is still an Omicron variant. Uh, it, it, since late May, is really the predominant variant in the United States. And if you go on their website, they actually have a map of the United States, and it's actually cut out by the, uh, it's very similar to, I think it's actually identical to what the HRSA uh, ATC layouts are actually, because like for us, it's, it's the New York, New Jersey, but it also covers the Caribbean and Puerto Rico. So it's interesting. 
know, by area, you can actually go on the website and look at your region and see what's the predominant variant. But it's going to be right now, it's going to be either BA.2 or this BA.2.12.1 uh, in the US with the latter, the BA.2.12.1 really taking over slowly. So obviously we know that, the, that that Omicron is more contagious, but I think with the luckiest, the lucky part about what's happening now is that the hospitalization, the death rates are really not with what they've been in previous variants. Um, and, and I think most of you know, a, a lot of this has to do with the fact that we have some degree of natural immunity as well, probably from being exposed, but more importantly, our vaccinations have really, really made a difference. And remember, we're not getting vaccinated against the, the new variant. We're getting vaccinated against the original strain, like kind of the wild type virus with no, with, without many mutations. Right. So it's, it's kind of hard to know what's happening, but um, I think community, I think immunity for vaccines is really has, has potential um, uh, to really be protecting us, which I think is really the most, which, which is, which is most important. A lot of this is kind of hard to know and hard to show because they're the variants that there's not a lot of data with the variants with these different vaccines. Um, the one thing I will say, uh, just like to give you an example, in our hospital, I think yesterday, this is, again, this is uh, middle of June, um, early early to mid-June, um, you know, we're looking at, I think we had like maybe 55 people in the hospital, and eight or nine of those were in the ICU, but the vast majority of people who went up in the ICU, uh, almost all of them were unvaccinated, and a lot, of, even a lot of the admissions are people who are, who are unvaccinated. So again, vaccine still really is our best, is, is our best defense to, uh, to prevent to prevent COVID. Is there any way to predict hospitalizations? Yes, this is a great question, Mariana. And I, and I hate to make predictions. Again, it's one thing I, I try not to do, but I, you know, and I, I don't like to do it because you never know what's going to happen next week or two weeks from now. But um, I, I will kind of just let you know that there are some modeling data that now that they've got some data on some of these variants, they do have some, you know, kind of suggested potential um Changes in hospitalizations that could happen. Again, a lot of this is based on a lot of new, a lot of factors, numerous factors, um, and they basically modeled uh, what the summer may look like as it relates to hospitalizations. So, anyway, so if you go on the website, you can see this. But based on the most recent hospitalization rates and what they think is happening with with Omicron, especially this BA. 2.12.1, which is probably going to be the, the, the complete takeover, will completely take over all of, all of COVID in the next couple of weeks if it hasn't happened already. But as we get into the middle of June and even later, we're probably going to see about 5,000 new admissions uh, to hospitals related to COVID. However, the range of predictions could be as high as even 10,000, depending on what happens with the variant. So again, you know, these are all predictions, but but again, a lot of data collected and they're getting a little bit difficult. It's still always difficult for us to know for sure, but I think they're getting better at predicting what's going to happen based on based on some of the some of the variant data. So again, just to repeat that, so the you know probably around five thousand new admissions in the sometime in the summer, like June, July, and then uh, predictors uh, th those predictions could be as high as ten thousand, depending on ha on what happens with the variant. But again, if you're vaccinated and and boosted, uh, at least your single booster, uh, and if you're over fifty, got that second booster, you know your risk is is much lower. What about the EUA and the FDA information? Is there anything new there that we need to know about, you know, when it comes to forms of COVID-19 treatment, whether it's neumatrovir with ritonavir or something else? Yeah, so I, I think this is also important. I think we're I think I feel like we're always talking about this neumatrovir with ritonavir. Um, but there are some changes that seem to occur almost weekly. So uh, so for those of you who listen to us every week or you know, really kind of pay attention to our podcast and, 
if you've heard any of our COVID-19 updates recently, we almost always talk about the oral options. And I, I personally think that we don't hear about them enough in the lay press and, and even in, uh, uh, you know, anywhere. It doesn't seem like anybody's really talking about them. But you know, clearly, if you do get COVID or someone in your family gets COVID, please have them refer to their primary care provider because they can get oral medications uh, that are available pretty quickly. Uh, but the one thing I do want to let everybody know is that the FDA is part of the emergency use authorization. Um, they created a great checklist for this ritonavir boosted nermatilvir, again, Paxlovid, um, that can be downloaded and used to assess the use of this drug and determine any potential drug interaction issues that may be needed uh, to be changed or addressed prior to prescribing. But most importantly, there's actually a checklist on, on criteria for whether or not they meet criteria to get the drug. Um, so that's important. So if you're a prescriber out there or you're working in an office and you're trying to figure out how do we decide who to get who to give this to? That checklist can be very very helpful. And more most importantly, you have to you have to check um, the the drug interactions. And if you if you want to simply Google nermatilvir uh, ritonavir patient eligibility screening checklist tool for prescribers, you can see it right there, and it has a checklist for medical history. It's right off the FDA uh, website, and then it walks you through um, some of the major interactions. So what I like most about it is that it's got. Uh, it's, a, it's like a five or six page uh, chart. And at the bottom, they have these, these uh, color-coded boxes, either red or yellow next to each medication that determine what drugs should be considered contraindicated and those to be used with caution. So, so take a look. I think that, you know, obviously the red ones are going to be contraindicated. The yellow ones are going to be, you have to make a dosage change or maybe hold it or, or make um, uh, some kind of a, some kind of a, a decision. Uh, but I can tell you that these calls are, are coming to our pharmacy at AMC. We we have people calling the inpatient pharmacy from the outpatient side, asking for us for advice on what to do with some of the concurrent medications. So it's nice to have some guidance. So if you're out there practicing, either as a pharmacist or as a provider, and you get these questions, you can certainly go to this this FDA uh, checklist and get some and get kind of the the kind of the skinny on, on interactions. There's other places to go too, but you know, clearly this is based on the FDA and the EUA, and that'll help you determine what to do. I can tell you this, though, um, the, um, there are probably very, very few instances where uh, any change to an HIV medication needs to be done. Um, I, I cannot tell you, uh, we, we've heard stories about people, you know, telling them to stop their antiretrovirals during while they're taking ritonavir boosted in their maxilvir. There's no rationale for that. So with the vast majority of HIV medications, really stay the course, continue the HIV medications while you're receiving ritonavir boosted in their maxilvir. It's the best advice I can give. Uh, and if you need help, certainly call us, call the ATC. Um, call whoever you call for, for help, but certainly our ATC is available for consultation uh, uh, related to HIV and that intersection with COVID-19 and treatment. A question that comes to mind when talking about all of this is how readily available these medications are. So how can providers learn about availability of these drugs for COVID-19 treatment? Yeah, so great question, Mariana. I think really important, and you know, I think you know you could assume that well, geez, you know, we don't have this drug in our area. Well, there's another great site to go to to see who has it as it relates to medications, and this is kind of a, a, a long a long website, but it's COVID-19-therapeutics-locator-dhhs.hub.arcgis.com. All right, so if you just go and search COVID-19 therapeutics locator in Google, this will probably come up. Um, this is the one that I've used, but it allows you actually to select the zip code 
And then you can see what's happening in your area as far as drug supply. I think the New York State Department of Health, at least because I'm in New York State, I think they also have a website which can help you do this. But I encourage people to use this. But right now, obviously, the New York State one, we're only going to be giving New York State sites, right? But this this other one, this uh, this, this DHHS one is national. Uh, but right now, it seems as though there was a good supply of, of oral medications. And um, the other thing that's important, too, is um, the, the Bebtilovimab, which is the only MAB monoclonal antibody that's authorized for Omicron, that actually may be limited in certain areas. So that's important for you to know as well. And I think you can actually put that into these websites and that'll tell you how much Bebtilovimab people have. So it's really helpful, I think, to kind of get a sense of what's actually happening uh, with, with, uh, with drug supply. Thanks, John. And we will put that website into our podcast episode description so that folks have easy access. Great. So, so before we wrap up, let's in fact address these, you know, nirmatrevir with ritonavir failures. It seems like it's a good medication, but some people do fail treatment. Why is that? Yeah. So this has been reported anecdotally initially in areas, um, uh, in certain areas of the country. And then there was a, uh, they, they, now I just want everybody to be cautious that we call them these pre-printed case articles or case reports. And you, you'll, you'll know uh, that hopefully that these pre-prints are not actually peer reviewed yet. So sometimes you got to be careful. It's not actually published, but it's kind of in press and you have to be kind of aware of that and who knows where it is in the process of being reviewed. So just be careful. But there was a case report from the VA in Boston that provided some insight into, into a one one case where a patient had a significant PCR um, viral level and a viral load spike after they completed a five-day course of, of this ritonavir boosted nermatilvir, so Paxlovid. Um, a lot of speculation of why and what to do, but the bottom line, um, the retreatment of patients is not recommended by the FDA or the EUA. However, in some situations, providers may still choose to do this. And, and again, I want you to be warned that, it, that it's outside of the current guidance, but I think there are some providers out there that may decide if somebody's immunocompromised or somebody's a transplant patient and didn't really have a good vaccine uh, response, there might be a rationale to retreat people. But again, it's outside of the EUA. So I just got to be very careful when you're talking about this. But FDA is aware of the reports of some of these patients developing recurrent COVID-19 symptoms and they're collecting data, um, especially after those people who've completed, already completed a course of ritonavir boosted their maxillavir. Uh, in some of these cases, patients actually tested negative on a direct SARS-CoV-2 viral test and then tested positive again a few days after stopping um, stopping the, the nermaxilvir, uh, ritonavir. So just, it's interesting. So I don't really have much to say on what to do with it. Um, there are other, uh, other outlets that have, that have been talking about this. I just encourage you to stay tuned because probably by the time you may even heard this, there, there may actually be some changes in, in, in the data that's out there and what people are recommending. Um, there is a great place. I, 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 uh, I, I would encourage you to, if you search, if, if anybody knows Dr. Paul Sachs, he's very good from, from Boston. Uh, he he's got a, a great um, uh, a great uh, blog on this topic, which you can certainly certainly search if you search Dr. Sachs and, and these failures. You can certainly get his his take on it too. Um, but some additional data in the Epic HR trial, uh, some patients in the range was anywhere from one to two percent had one or more positive SARS-CoV-2 PCR tests in, uh, after testing negative. So in the studies that actually led to the EUA for ritonavir boosted and the matchover, this did actually occur. Um, there was an increase in the amount of SARS-CoV-2 detected by PCR even after completing their treatment course. So 
couple things. Most did not have symptoms at the time of the positive PCR test. That's important. Uh, no increased occurrence of hospitalization or death, and there was no development of drug resistance identified. Now, this this taught this topic of drug resistance. I will say that there are some papers that are starting to emerge that are suggesting that there is some resistance to certain um, uh, some the open. I think it's the open reading frames. I think they call them uh, regions of uh, of of um, the the um, of SARS-CoV-2 in patients who have received ritonavir boosted nermaxilvir. So we will, I think we are going to see some resistance or that's kind of early studies that have kind of shown this. There's no evidence of benefit at this time for a longer course of treatment. So for example, could be doing 10 days versus five or repeating the treatment course with it within uh, with recurrent COVID-19 uh, symptoms. And again, this is really from the FDA information. So bottom line, some people will get ritonavir boosted nermaxilvir, feel better, finish their five-day course, and then they may actually kind of have a, have, a, have a resurgence at like day 9, 10, or 11, maybe, maybe even later. But again, it's probably the same infection. The question is, why is that happening? Could it be that we're just not treating them enough, uh, long enough? Could it be that the um, uh, that we didn't suppress the virus enough and, and, they're, and they're rebounding? Could it be resistance? There's a possibility that that might be. Uh, we don't really know that for sure in this setting of these failures, but uh, there's a lot to kind of unpack here. But I think uh, a ongoing topic, which I think we should stay stay tuned to, especially for those of you using ritonavir boosted or maxilvir in, in these patients with COVID-19. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about the latest on COVID-19 and the treatment options available for people. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaaetc.org. That's www.nikaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaaetc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaaetc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.